Okay, I know you all just sat down, but please, worship with your bodies. Stand up for the reading of the word. We are in John 16. Again, I know, if you've been here for a few weeks, we're going to zoom in on a specific bit of this, but this is John 16. We're going to read verses 4 through 11. You guys ready? You guys ready? Bill's here. <laughs> Anyone else? You guys ready? All right, John 16, verses 4 through 11. Here's what the word of the Lord says. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Lord, I thank you for the gravity and joy of preaching your life-giving word. Heavenly Father, by your spirit, would you remind us of our precious union with your Son? Would you teach us to abide with Jesus? Would you prompt us um, through love to obey Christ? Would you transform us into the image of Jesus? And Spirit, would you bring fire to the form of the sermon? Would you bring light and heat to the words that I have um, attempted to prepare this morning? We need Um, a right now word from you. We need to hear from the king of the cosmos, the Lord of the universe. So speak to us today. And Lord, we also acknowledge that there's a lot going on in our culture and we know the um, elections are coming up this Tuesday. I just simply and we humbly ask that you would lead and you would guide um, all that is going on, that you would put those into office in cities and governments and in schools that would honor you and seek the flourishing of your image bearers. So would that be so in the name of Christ? We love you. You are a good king. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. You may be seated. Hmm. This is wondrous strange. This is wondrous strange, he said. His mind is reeling because of what he's seeing. And he's... A down-to-earth guy. He's practical. He is a man of science. His feet are firmly planted on the earth, but what he's seeing does not fit his view of the world. Something's going on. Something is happening. Evil has invaded the kingdom. There's something rotten in Denmark. I just gave my hand away there. It's nighttime, well, at least for some, right? It's nighttime, The gentleman and scholar is up on the battlements, up there on the wall of the castle, and he has just seen a ghost. And he is with his good friend. What's his friend's name? Hamlet. We got this. We got this. It's going to be a good morning. We got this. And there they are, looking at the ghost of Hamlet's dad, looking at the ghost of the murdered king. And so Horatio exclaims in wonder, oh, day and night, this is wondrous strange. Translation, ain't no way I'm seeing what I'm seeing right now. What is happening? This can't, this can't be happening. 
This is weird. And that's when Hamlet replies with his famous and prophetic sentence. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Now, this bit of Shakespearean drama from Hamlet, I think, is diagnostic for us and instructive for us. It tells us about the world in which we live and speaks the truth that we really need to hear. Because in the Western world, we live in an age that has worked really hard, that has labored to disenchant the world, to reduce the world in which we live to matter, to material, to mechanism, to that which is only classified as empirical. A world that has labored to evict God and then by association has had to exile talk of the devil, has had to diminish or retire terms like evil or demon or Satan. Because if you talk about Satan in the world at large, if you talk about the devil, if you talk about spiritual warfare or demons, more likely than not you're going to get one of those like side glances and the eyebrows raised that says, I, I thought higher of you. I thought we put that stuff behind us. I thought you were more educated than you're showing right now. But I agree with Hamlet here, and I agree with Kaiser Soze. Everyone knows Kaiser Soze, right? You know Kaiser Soze? Remember Kaiser Soze from that old mind-bending movie, Usual Suspects? Anybody see that one? He, he's uh, a villain in that, um, and he has this line. He says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And like that, poof, he's gone. Now, he ripped that line off of the French poet Charles Baudelaire, who said it a century or so before. But that's just what Satan does, right? He rips stuff off. He steals. He plagiarizes. He counterfeits. He twists. He bends. He distorts. And he deforms. He's a thief what he does. And I say all this today um, because what we're going to talk about is simply this. We're going to talk about the good news about the bad one. The good news about the bad one. The good news about the evil one. The good news about the bad guy. And I want to be clear about this up on the front end. Um, this is, is not a sermon about Satan. Okay? This is a sermon about the glory-deserving evil-conquering, mercy-dispensing, justice-bringing king of the cosmos, Jesus, okay? We're going to talk a lot about Satan, but he just has a subpart in the whole deal, okay? So when this passage um, comes before us uh, today, what I would like us to do is to zoom in on verse 11. So let's look at it again. So John 16, I'm going to read 8 and 11 here. You can see it up there. And when he, it's the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict, that's expose and convince the world of, and then we get to verse 11, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So what does that mean? What does it mean that the, world, the ruler of this world is judged? So we're going to talk about the what, and then after we get that established, we're going to get into the, the, the so what. What does this mean for us right here and right now? The what and the so what. So let's get into the what as quickly as we can. When Jesus says the ruler of this world, he's talking about Satan. John calls the ruler, uh, Satan the ruler of this world many times in his gospel. And in our day and age, in our secular Western enlightened culture, we tend to be more like Horatio 
than Hamlet. Now, a couple definitions of some words here. So the word Satan, let's put that up. In Hebrew, it's, it's ha-satan. Um, that means the adversary or the accuser or the opponent. It's less of a, a proper name and it's more of a description. He is the accuser. So it's ha, that's a Hebrew word, the, and then satan means accuser or adversary or opposer. Okay, and then the other word, the, the Greek word that we see um, in our scriptures here is diabolos. It's where we get the word devil, and that means an accuser or a slander or literally one who throws like a monkey wrench through something, diabolos, to throw something through and to wreck it, to tear it apart. That's, that's what he does. Now, talk of Satan makes us a bit uncomfortable, um, but not necessarily because he's, he's evil or because the topic gives us the creeps, but because it makes us look a little bit crazy, right? A little less intellectually credible and a little bit backwards in our world that has um, a great deal of, as Lewis said, chronological snobbery uh, in, in the air. So uh, maybe you're here um, and you're sweating a little bit because your friend who you've been inviting to church for months has come today. And you're like, no! It's devil day, um, and my friend is, is here. Fantastic. Or, or maybe you, you, this thought has already crossed your mind like, man, we're talking about the devil, and I was really looking for something encouraging, something, something helpful, something that I needed that really affects my life. I want to say that both these thoughts betray our worldview and our assumptions about life. There is a fascinating book called The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost Their Sense of Evil by Andrew Delbanco from Harvard and Columbia University. And I want to read you a few quick bits so you get the feel of the book. Here's what he says. He says, A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. The repertoire for evil has never been richer, yet never have our responses been so weak. We have no language for connecting our inner lives with the horrors that pass before our eyes in the outer world. Philanthropy and protest seem empty gestures, arbitrary in their choice of beneficiary or occasion. And he's saying that is in light of evil. He goes on to say, We live in the most brutal century in history, but instead of stepping forward to take the credit, the devil has rendered himself invisible. The very notion of evil seems incompatible with modern life from which the ideas of transgression and the accountable self are fast receding. Yet despite this loss of old words and moral concepts, that is, Satan, sin, and evil, we cannot do without some conceptual meaning, means for thinking about the universal human experience of cruelty and pain. My driving motive in writing this book has been the conviction that if evil, with all its insidious complexity, escapes the reach of our imagination, it will have established dominion over us all. In short, in, in my own words here, modernity has performed a cultural exorcism of Satan through the Enlightenment and our secular ideologies, and we try to live in a disenchanted world, but it doesn't work because we keep bumping up against all the nasty stuff. We keep bumping up against evil and don't have the resources to cope if we don't have the cross of Christ in our life. But Jesus will have none of this understanding of things. He knows full and well that there, there is um, a, a, a personal being, um, this intelligence in this world called Satan. He did battle with him, right? 
And in fact, it is because of the cruel realities of the Satan um, and evil that Jesus came. So I want to give you a verse, simple verse, but it'll, it's a verse that will just preach itself. And, and here's the verse. It's 1 John 3.8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, period. That's a good verse, isn't it? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, the Son of God came to earth to bring light to the darkness, to the pall that Satan had cast, to bring life to the death that Satan had ushered in, to bring restoration to the creation and creatures that Satan had vandalized, to bring truth to the lies that Satan has been hissing and spitting since Genesis 3. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. The devil is not a mere metaphor. Destroy. Uh, this Greek word here that John uses is this word luo, um, and it means to simply loosen, to release, to break up into pieces, to pull something apart. Jesus comes to loosen the works of evil that have bound us up, that have shackled us, that have chained us to despair and depression and darkness and destruction. He has come to destroy the very things that are destroying us. Jesus came to judge Satan and to destroy his diabolical work. Now, what are the works of Satan? What are the works of Satan? Well, in confronting the hypocritical religious leaders in Israel, Jesus says this in John 8, 44. Now, by the way, just caveat, I'm going to be in a bunch of different passages today. I'm going to do it a little bit differently than I normally do. Kind of take one big chunk and work my way through it systematically. But we need to put forward before our eyes a comprehensive understanding of of this topic, okay, and, and which will explain our key verse in John 16. So um, we will be flipping um, pages here a, a bit today, but I pray it's helpful and um, not overwhelming. So this is John 8, verse 44. Jesus is confronting the religious leaders, those who are hypocrites, and he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus knows the devil is real. And his works, as this points out, are deception and death. His works, his labors are to deceive, to twist our minds so that we can't see the goodness of God. He promotes those things that bring about death and destruction. He gets into the mind and, and bends and twists and deforms narratives. He confuses, he, he deludes, he wants to see the death of your trust in God. He wants to see your love, your joy, your peace, your patience, your kindness, your goodness your gentleness, your faithfulness. He wants to see all of those put in a casket of a stony heart. That is his aim. He wants to deceive you about your sexuality. He wants to distort your sexuality so it is no longer a signpost to the union of heaven and earth, to the union of, of the church with, with Christ. He wants to, to murder your marriage because it is a faithful testimony of the God who is faithful to you in covenant union. He wants to destroy your body and pull apart your mind from, from your body because you are an integrated being that points to a God of heaven 
and earth. He wants to rip these things apart. Deception and death are Satan's wheelhouse. The Dark, the dark Knight. Anybody see The Dark Knight? Old Batman movie, right? Who, who plays the Joker? We, yeah, we know it. We know it. Heath, Heath Ledger, right? Um, man, there's this scene. There's this chilling scene. Do you remember that big warehouse scene and there's piles and piles of money? And so they're all there and the, the Joker's doing his thing. He's just waving this gun around and all the other criminals and crooks are like, what, do, what are we going to do with the money? And he says, it's not about money. It's about a message. It all burns. It all burns. And then he goes and he lights all this money on fire and he calls himself an agent of chaos he's an agent of chaos and at one point alfred pennyworth batman's savvy butler says some men aren't looking for anything logical like money they can't be bought bullied reasoned or negotiated with some men just want to watch the world burn and the thing that was terribly incandescent that was terrifyingly magnetic about Ledger's performance of the Joker in this dark movie was that it touched a theological truth. It touched a theological truth. The Joker's madness was hitting on a supernatural nerve. Satan's work is to tear down God's world, to burn it down. Where there is life, he wants death. Where there is truth, he wants deception. From the beginning, as the scripture says here, from the beginning, Satan wanted to burn the garden down. He wanted to turn the, the flowers and the fruit into ashes and ember. He wanted God's people, his image bearers, to breathe their last breath, and he wanted to see them turned into dust. He wanted to strike at God simply because God was God and that he was not. And the way he did it was to strike at the image bearers who spoke of the goodness and the truth of who God is. But here is the good news about the bad guy right at the beginning. The good news about the bad one happens right there at the start of the story, right? God comes in in mercy and grace after, you know, Adam and Eve have the, the, the juice from the, the, the fruit still on their face and they're all in the fruit of the loom clothing or the, the, the leaves that they put on. And God comes in in his mercy and his grace and he engages them. He seeks them out, he loves them, and he covers their, their shame and atones for their guilt. He slaughters an animal and he puts that skin on them and, and dresses them and then he turns to the serpent and he curses the serpent, right? He curses the serpent. Here's the good news about the bad guy right at the beginning in Genesis 3.15. He says this, I will put enmity between you, he's speaking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that word is actually better translated as, as to strike. He shall strike your head and you shall strike his heel. In other words, he's saying to the enemy, one is coming that you can't wait to strike down. You will bite his heel with your fangs. You'll put your poison in his flesh. But when you strike him, he's going to crush you. You make him bleed, but he'll break you. See, God's word in the garden right there were the promise of Satan's downfall. They were the prophecy of his dethronement, and they were the guarantee of Satan's condemnation right at the story's start. And then all the scriptures lean forward. 
They lean forward from that garden in Genesis to the garden of Gethsemane in the Gospels. All the scriptures lean forward from those tears in that garden to the tears and the sweat and the blood of the prayers of Jesus in Gethsemane. The scriptures lean forward from Genesis on to Good Friday. They, they, they move from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to, to the tree that, that Christ would hang upon, the tree of cursing. And all the scriptures lean forward to Easter Sunday when resurrection life would break open across the world. Right? They, they, all of the scriptures, they lean forward to that Good Friday. Again, where Jesus was mocked by these, these wickedly giddy crowds, right? And behind these crowds that were mocking Jesus, you can, you can get a sense that in the supernatural, there's a cheering legion of demons in the supernatural realm going, we got him! We got him! And then there's probably this chorus that came up. We are the champions. I'm not going to do it, but you, you know it. We're the champions! We got him. And it looked like they did, right? It looked like Satan had won on Friday. And it looked like Satan had won on Saturday. And you know this bit. You can help me out. It looked like he won on Friday. It looked like he won on Saturday. But Sunday? Yeah. Sunday's coming. He's risen. See, the cross was not the condemnation of Jesus, as the religious leaders thought. It was the condemnation of Satan. And Satan, impressing Jesus to the cross towards his death, ushered in his own death blow. The cross of Jesus is the victory of God over Satan's sin and death. The cross of Jesus is the victory of God over Satan, sin, and death. The ruler of this world has been judged, dethroned, his authority stripped. He was seen as a counterfeit he was. That's good news. That's really good news. So that's the what Jesus is talking about in this passage. That's that's the what. The Holy Spirit will convict us, expose us, and convince us of the story that God is writing. That that God, in his love, has sent his Son into this world to make all things right, to judge evil. He will bring justice. He will right the wrongs. Evil and the evil one will be exposed and seen for what they are. Jesus has judged Satan, showed him for what he is, which is a punk and a parasite. Not the all-powerful one. Jesus at the cross has shown Satan to be the loser and God to be the victor. Satan couldn't slay Jesus. Jesus laid his life down, right? The death bonds of the grave could not hold Jesus. He got up and he walked out. The lies about Jesus that Satan spun into this world could not hold. The truth was vindicated when Jesus walked again. His teachings proved to be true. His prophecies were seen to be right. And his, chain, his claims were validated as he broke the chains that held us. The Father stamped 100% certified on him. Jesus at the cross tore off and threw down Satan's badge of authority that he wielded for a long time. Satan has no power, no authority, no jurisdiction to keep us locked in death, crushed in guilt, or shrouded in shame. And Paul talks about this in the most spectacular in Colossians. So Colossians, another book in the New Testament, uh, Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says this, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, who's he talking about there? And you were dead in your sins. Who's that? It's all of us. Okay? God made alive together with him. Who did he make alive? 
us with him, Jesus, right? Having forgiven us our trespasses, what, what has he done? He's forgiven us our sins. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The judgment that should have been ours, the death that should have been ours, Jesus took it in our place and has released us from that. And by doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He disarmed them. He, he unloaded the weapons that were aimed at us. He dismantled the, the atomic bomb that was coming for, for our soul. Right? He, he broke those swords that were coming our way. He disarmed the rulers. At the cross, Jesus saved us, and he conquered and shamed evil. So again, um, that's the what. That's the what of our passage today in John 16. Jesus is talking about... Um, how the Spirit will teach us this and show us the truth of this. But what's the so what? (laughs) What does this mean? What does this mean for us besides some really fascinating theology? Well, there's a reason that the Father and the Son sent the Spirit, and one of those reasons of sending the Spirit was to convince us and show us and teach us about the fact that the ruler of this world is, is judged. And the reason is simply this. It changes everything. It changes how you live your life. It changes everything. If we're in a spiritual battle... If we are in a world in which there are more things in heaven and in earth than are dreamed of in our philosophies, to know that there's an enemy is kind of important. To know that that enemy is defeated is really important. That his authority has been taken away, that he won't win, that just changes everything. To know the enemy has been disarmed, that his weapons of deception and death have been emptied of their power. Well, now we can live in hope and not in uncertainty. Right? We can live on mission rather than in confusion. We can live in joy and not despair, and we can live in confidence and, and courage, not fear or inaction. And so I, w- I want to do this with the remainder of our time. I want to give us four so what's for this truth of, of the rule of this world being judged by the cross of Christ. For so what's that reshape and inform our lives. So follow the logic here with me. If God has judged the evil one, if he has triumphed over darkness at the cross, then we live in a world with a good God who is not asleep on the job, with a good God who is not dropping the, the cosmic ball of justice. We are, we are in a world where there is a God who is doing right, And if this heavenly judge judges all things in heaven and on earth, you know what that means? It means that if he's the judge, we don't have to be the judge. We don't have to be the judge. Do you know the engine that drives our judgmentalism? The engine that drives our judgmentalism is fueled by a lack of faith in God. We are so judgy, so judge mental, ready to cancel people left and right because we are not putting our faith in the one whose job it is to do it. And we condemn this person and and that person for this thing or that thing. And we do it because, this sounds a a little counterintuitive, but we do it because our hearts are, are wired to cry out for justice. Our hearts are wired to cry out for justice, right? You, you go to a birthday party with some four or five-year-olds, and, and one little girl gets a piece of cake bigger than her sister, and her sister says what? That's 
Where does that come from? Did you teach her that? No, you didn't. It just comes out of their innermost being because we are made in the image of a God who loves justice. Our hearts are designed to cry out for justice, but our hands are not formed to hold the divine gavel. When we take the gavel in our own hand because he won't do it, we bring about a whole lot of hurt in this world. See, the reality is everyone will get away with nothing. Everyone will get away with nothing and no one will get away with anything. No one will get away with anything. And just because the systems of judgment may fall in our world or institutions may show toxic biases, just because there are systemic evils that are born out of the, uh, the, the sin and evil of the human heart, it doesn't mean that justice won't be had. God has judged Satan at the cross and all deception and death he has spun into the world are being judged and will ultimately be judged because of the cross of Christ. So again, why do we get all judgmental about things? Well, it's, it's because we're not operating in faith. Being judgmental, and and listen, I'm not talking about being discerning, being wise, or rendering right judgment, or having a healthy legal system. I'm not talking about any of that. I mean being judgmental, and I think you know what I mean when I say that. Condemnatory, hypocritical, ungracious. Being judgmental is a lack of trust in God, that he is the one ruling and reigning and will judge all things. And when we feel more righteous than God, (laughs) look out. Because there's nothing more diabolical than feeling more righteous than God, and then you have to pick up his slack and judge your neighbor. Now, um, just, just think, I, I should move on from this point, but all the violence, the vitriol, the, the riots, the gross racism, and the polarizing judgmentalism of the last few years, born out of not trust in God, born out of a lack of trust in him, and so injustices were multiplied because people held God's gavel. The Holy Spirit works to show us the truth of evil's dethronement so we can trust God to do what is right. Now, maybe some of you are saying at this point, I, dang it, I knew it. I'm going to have to write the, the, the pastor an email. Right. I knew it. Here, here's the cop out, right? So what are we supposed to not address the evils of this world? That's the church's problem. It's been the church's problem. It's been silent on so many issues and not done the Jesus-like work of righteousness and justice. I knew it. Hold on. (laughs) Hold on. Here's the good news about the bad guy. Point number two. Knowing the good news about the bad guy emboldens us to walk in the authority he has given us and to do what is right. Knowing that Satan has been defanged by the cross or declawed by the victory of Jesus, we are now emboldened to bring the light to the darkness, to bring the truth to the lies. I mean, think about it for a moment. What reason do we have not to be brave to stand up against evil in this world? What reason do we have not to be brave when Jesus says at the end of Matthew, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Therefore, go out into this world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And I'll be with you to the end of the age. Like, what reason do we not have to be brave if the one who judged evil at the cross is with us and has commissioned us, and it's his world, it's our Father's world, and we have total permission to walk in it in victory and authority? What reason do we have not to be brave? And 
Some of us struggle with boldness and living out our faith. And, and that's, I'm going to put myself right in the middle of that category. And it's because of fear. It's because of some lies in our head. It's because of deception. So what do you have to fear if the cross of Jesus was the crushing of Satan? What do we have to fear if the one who got up out of death as though it was some kind of nap is the invincible king of the universe and his spirit is inside us and he says, I've won. So knowing that, knowing that in the cross of Jesus, the rule of this world has been judged, we don't have to live in destructive judgmentalism, he's judged. Two, we can live with this bold humility and walk in the the given authority as his kids that he has, has given us. And three, third, we can now love others better by seeing them rightly. We can actually love others better by seeing them rightly. How? How do I get to that point? Well, look at what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12 through 13. He says this. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The flesh and blood. What's the flesh and blood? Us. People, right? Flesh and blood. People. We do not wrestle against the people, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand an evil day and having done all to stand firm. Don't have time to get into all of it, but it's incredible. See, our enemy isn't that person in Congress. And our nemesis isn't that persecutor of ours. And that arch rival of ours isn't that abuser and that antagonist of ours isn't that, that bully. Our enemy is Satan and the forces of evil. And they have been defeated. And, and this changes how we see people. Now we can love the other. Because what happens is when we don't have a devil in our worldview and the supernatural in our worldview, when the devil is gone, we now demonize people. And they are the ones that we are seeking to destroy and to crush and to tear down rather than love them and see them in compassion as as deceived because of the enemy that is at work in their mind and destroying their lives. Now we can love our neighbor and not demonize them because we know who the real enemy is. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. The fourth so what, the great and glorious fourth so what of realizing that the ruler of this world has been judged at the cross of Jesus is that this victory that is unleashed, um, it brings celebration. And we should celebrate the brilliance and the power and the glory of God. Right? Um, we, we have some winning teams around here, right? Um, anybody ever been to a parade? For, for the Warriors, or at least watch it on TV, right? There's a ton of money that goes into that. And there's a ton of fun and a ton of celebration, and rightfully so. Like, something wonderful was, was done. Can you imagine the celebration that is due for the fact that the King of Heaven dove into the, the crashing and dark waves of death 
to rescue us from the deeps, to bring us up to the warmth and into the sunlight and put us on the shores of his kingdom and breathe his life into us so that this world might truly come to flourishing and he would get the glory that he deserves. What kind of celebration does that deserve? The cross, it's why we sing on Sundays. It's not just because we want a hymn witch and it's like warm the people up with some songs, then give them the word so maybe they'll take it into them and then sing them some more songs. We sing because death has been overcome. And you sing when joy fills your soul. When we know that the, the rule of this world has been judged, we become a singing people. And we celebrate the brilliance of our God, which we'll get to in a moment on how he did it, and the power of our God that, that he could do it, and the goodness of our God that he would do it. It's incredible. This is a God worthy of worship. This is a God worthy of our time, our attention, and every ounce of our affections. Okay. Um, Jesus destroys the works of the devil. Um, two things here as we come to a close. Uh, first, uh, I want to leave us with some sage advice from C.S. Lewis, um, which happens often here. Um, and I, I want this to find its home in our head and our hearts. And some of you who are my, my Lewisian-like uh, study bugs, you know which quote I'm already going to quote regarding the devil and the demon. I'm looking at you, Dane. You're smiling at me. So... Um, and here it is. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Satan is real, but Jesus deserves our attention. Okay? Satan is real, but Jesus deserves our attention. Second, um, here's what I want to do. I want to conclude with a bit of scripture in light of what we have said, and at first you're going to be like, whoa, he's going into another sermon. What is this about? Like, no, no, this all links together. Just, can you hold on with me like, for a few more moments, and let's pull this thing together? Do you guys remember the story um, of, of the little shepherd boy and the big uh, bully? Right? Goliath, right? We know the story. David and Goliath. So 1 Samuel chapter 17 it's that story of that little shepherd boy and that heavily armed bully named Goliath. And there they were, right? Two ambassadors, two kingdoms, two representatives of two kingdoms coming into conflict, Israel and Philistia, or the people of Philistine. One fierce and intimidating, right? like hulking and, and flexing and growling and slobbering, right? Ready to bring death to God's people. And the other one, I mean... The small, surprising figure of, of a hero, right? a counterintuitive warrior who was there like as, as the pizza delivery boy. It's like, what? This guy is going into the battlefield? He was there to bring food and to nourish his, his brothers, and he goes into the battlefield. And he steps up on behalf of the faithless people who are cowering instead of charging forward in the name of God. So proud and wanting to watch the world burn the imposing force that is Goliath, he mocks and he jeers, thinking that the battle is in the bag before it has even begun, right? He's like, you, you're, you're making fun of me by sending out this little punk. Like he, no, no contest. But in a surprising turn, right, the strength and bravado becomes Goliath's weakness, and the weakness of the shepherd boy becomes his strength, this small, smooth stone bullets across the valley, 
and hits this guy right in the head, and he probably had taken his helmet off out of pride and knocks him down. He knocks down the serpent-like Goliath. Now, why would I say serpent-like? The Bible's so cool. (laughs) Because in Hebrew, the armor that Goliath is wearing is described to be scaly like a snake. The word for bronze that is used for his armor and his weaponry is the word that sounds like snake, nachash. And, and help me here, if you remember the story, when he gets hit, this might sound like a little detail, but it's important, when he gets hit, does he fall forward or backward? He falls forward. What's the point? Ha! <laughs> Genesis 3, when God comes and he curses the serpent, he says what? You will crawl on your belly and then you will eat. Let me ask you, when you fall forward, your mouth hits the ground, what are you literally eating? The dust. Okay. Goliath literally bites the dust. That's two queen references in one sermon. That's weird. That's weird. Wasn't planning that. Remember back in Genesis 3, right? The serpent slaying promise. The serpent slaying promise. One day a descendant of the woman would crush the snake and that serpent's head would be crushed by a child of that woman, the child of humanity, child of Eve, the mother of all life. David sends a smooth rock bulleting into Goliath's forehead and then he lops his head off. You can't get more crushed than that, right? But it gets even better. Um, what is the instrument of Goliath's death? Be careful. It's the sword. We think, you know, his head is hit with the rock and then, he, and then he's done. But here's the deal. It's, it's the sword. But... Whose sword? I hope you see where we're going with this. It's Goliath's sword that does the striking. This is an often unseen detail that shimmers with the light of the gospel. David picks up Goliath's sword and uses the enemy's own weapon to slay him. I want to say that again. David picks up Goliath's own sword and uses the enemy's own weapon to slay him. Translation, the sword that was meant to slay the shepherd is used by the shepherd to slay the serpent. That's the cross of Jesus. Satan used the cross to get rid of his enemy and to prove himself. And the enemy, the the weapon that the enemy wielded was then turned back around on that enemy to overcome that enemy and free God's people and to embolden God's people. And then God's people ran across that valley chasing the darkness out of Israel. What are we called to do as the church of God? To know this victory that we have in Christ, that he has won, he has conquered that that scaly, big bully and toppled him. And now we are empowered as God's people to go into the valley of this kingdom and proclaim the good news and to chase the shadows out with love, joy, peace, compassion, gentleness, and all of it. 
That is what we are called to. It's a wondrous and strange victory, isn't it? It's a wondrous and strange victory. My friends, this is the cross of Jesus. The enemy's weapon that was meant to take out God's son was wielded by Jesus to slay our enemy. From Genesis on, the Bible is leading us to the cross of Jesus, the victorious cross of Jesus, the cross of Jesus that is the victory of God over Satan, over sin, and over death. And wouldn't you know it, that God would take a Roman torture device born of absolute evil and convert it into a global and cosmic symbol of hope. Father, you're incredible. We worship you, we praise you. You uh, have overcome evil in the most incredible and most profound, brilliant, light-bringing way. Would you be glorified in this morning? We love you. We need you. The name of Jesus is above all names. We thank you, Lord, for being our Savior. And as in your name we pray. Amen.